This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kettler. And this is episode 22 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 22nd of May. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? Well, Gary, today we're going to have a chat with Mark Blair, who runs Brightcove. Now, Brightcove is a video cloud company that powers a lot of video in Australia and right around the world. So we'll be talking to him about that. And then we're going to have an interview with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson, and we're going to have a chat with him about what he thinks about this proposed inquiry into the iron ore price. Very practical as our Sinclair this time round. Absolutely, and absolutely. and um, A load of manure, according to him. That's right, and he hits it right on the head. Anyway, let's have a chat with Mark Blair. Unfortunately, we spoke to Mark on a rather tinny Skype connection, and the audio isn't quite what we'd like, but his words are clear enough and very interesting. Mark, uh, tell us about Brightcove. Sure, Brightcove is a online video um, platform company. So we have a SaaS-based technology um, platform that, that runs in the cloud that helps um, our customers use and deliver um, video content online. Um, we have two kind of key focus areas in, in the industry. One is um, digital media companies. So that's companies where video is the um, the product and they're monetizing that video either through AVOD advertising funded video so that uh, folks like some of the broadcasters in Australia uh, like uh, MI9 with Jump In where you can catch up on, on, on broadcast content online Line on your, your iPad pad or iPhone, and they monetize that through through advertising. And the other sector is um, digital marketers, where um, that's brands that are using video as part of their digital marketing strategy. So they're they're leveraging. Um, that powerful communication tool to help um, increase awareness, loyalty, engagement, um, and ultimately convert uh, audience into to customers. So a great example there would be the, the Michael Hill Jewelers, and they, they use a lot of video across their site, and they use that to help increase the conversion rate so that when people are looking at jewelry online, they then uh, increase the, the, the likelihood of them to, to actually go ahead and purchase that. How effective is video these days to uh, for retailers and uh other companies selling brands. Um, it's incredibly effective, and there's a lot of data out there that, that kind of backs that up. Probably one of the most interesting um, examples where the, the data is being kind of um, strongly cited is in, in North America. There's a, uh, an e-tailer um, called Joyous. Um, they um, have um, a focus on uh, lifestyle, um, cosmetic, and jewelry goods for um, female audience as part of one of their funding rounds, they did a lot of research into the effectiveness and what they found was that the use of video versus not using video was four times more likely to result in a purchase and then what's even uh, more fantastic is they found that the um, um, size of the, the transaction was going to be potentially five times larger than not using video as part of the experience. So what is it about video that draws customers? 
it uh, particularly with with goods that are, are what I would call kind of high consideration purchases, where like take for example clothing and and Dio's used a, a, an enormous amount in in the fashion industry. There's the video is a, is a communication medium, it's just incredibly powerful. So the fact that you've got motion, you've got the the effects of gravity, so that if it's clothing, someone's walking along, you can see how the clothing lays on them. With with jewelry, with Michael Hill, they can show the the intricate um, pieces of the way a particular watch moves and, and how the mechanism works with, with a car. They can show um, how it handles around around a bend or, or how the engine works. So there's there's just a lot more possibilities to better um, educate um, people on your product with, with moving images as opposed to static image and tech. And so I think that's a that's a big piece of it. The other piece of it is um, kind of the, the ever-increasing challenge that we've all got around t- uh, time um, and so having a, a moving picture is a much more way, efficient way of consuming content. Um, people can uh, consume a lot more and, and take in a lot more when it's being told as a story through video than they can by uh, reading text. And I think in today's world, with the amount of um, time pressure everyone has, it's a, it's a great medium for efficiently getting a message across. What about in entertainment, Mark? Is that a, a large chunk of what you do? Absolutely. We work with um, most of the broadcasters in Australia and New Zealand on helping them deliver their catch-up TV services. We work with folk like um, you might have been, well, actually, I think it was pre- it's probably been pretty hard to not know about um, the recent initiative by Fairfax and, and uh, Nine Entertainment Network, Stan, the um, SVOD service. We've, we've been helping them deliver that service as well. And so that a big part of our kind of uh, uh, focus is, is helping media companies with uh, monetizing their, their content online. So you're the intermediary. Uh, do you get into production of these uh, videos? No, we're, we're purely focused on, on the technology, not the content. Whilst we work with um, partners in the industry that can help customers with the, with the content problems, typically um, we talk to customers about the technology piece of it. So we're the, we're the service that's making sure that, well, you're looking at the video on an iPhone or an Android or a, a laptop or, or a connected TV that that video plays in high quality uh, if it's advertising funded that the advertising plays back in high quality and doesn't doesn't make the experience jarring if it's um, e-commerce we're integrating with the content management system and the e-commerce platform so that again it's a seamless experience and so we're, we're really making sure that the companies that we work with don't have to worry about the technology problems related to delivering video and we do that at scale so that if you're a brand that comes out with a very novel campaign and, and, and has normal usage of, you know, people of, of 100 people looking at your video one day and then you go to 50,000, you don't have to worry about that the, the video is not playing because um, of scaling issues. And the same with, with media companies. We help them scale and we help them deliver to as many devices as possible. Obviously, you would be in demand by major retailers like Michael Hill. But, I mean, for a smaller retailer, a video offering would be quite expensive, wouldn't it? Um, well, that's one of the beauties of, 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 of SaaS-based platforms is we're getting the economy of scale about having a, a global platform 
that customers, uh, it, it doesn't matter whether you're you know, a big jeweler like Michael Hill or, or, or a smaller business, you're using that same platform and we're able to, to provide subscription services that um, can meet the needs of small and large businesses. And it's really something that even, even relatively small organizations can, can start to, to use and leverage. And it, coupled with that, the, the cost of actually producing the videos are coming down as well. So there's a whole class of smaller video production firms that are emerging and meeting the needs of smaller businesses wanting to start using video as part of their um, their digital marketing strategy. So they could use, uh, you could get uh, an individual who's a bit talented who could use just an iPad with his cameras to produce a video on uh, and deliver it. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, that the important thing there is, is, is understanding what your audience is and what your goals of the, of the video are, right? And sometimes, um, kind of high production values are, are important, um, for the video. And sometimes something that's, you know, potentially lower production values and a little bit more edgy can be the, the message. I've, I've attended a number of digital marketing kind of conferences and seminars over the last five years. And, and this has been a topic in terms of talking about how you can uh, kind of cost effectively produce video and, and it's, it's things um, such as the technology in, in, in phone devices are, are, are certainly allowing that to um, to get lower. I think the key though is always making sure that you understand what your strategic goals are, what your outcomes are, are and then framing that and um, I think there are definitely values from some of these smaller production companies that can help you kind of tell that story. Yeah, somebody with marketing experience would be crucial in this, wouldn't it? Exactly. Yeah, you've got you've got to know why you're using it before you start using it, right? But um, I think that the key is it's you know it, it's no lo- there's no longer a barrier around using video for a marketer of going oh well I need to pay to get it on a, a broadcast channel. They can they can look to deliver through their own website um, a, a story about their. what they offer to their customers through their own website, which I think is very powerful for for brands. What about bandwidth in Australia compared with, say, the US or Europe? Is there an issue there locally, um, partly cost, I guess? How do you see that? Things have definitely been going in the direction um, for a, for a number of years, and, and we actually track kind of what the what we call the average bit rate delivered, which is the kind of average quality of the the, the the video delivered. Part of our value proposition is that when someone gives us a video, what we do um, without them having to think about it is we create multiple versions of that video um, to suit all types of devices and bandwidth scenarios. And then what our player technology does is it um, looks at the network bandwidth that's available, looks at the device that's being used and optimizes the experience so that they get the best experience for the conditions that they have. And so we try and take away some of those issues of, you know, spinning wheels or buffering and the video stopping playing. We're trying to solve a lot of those problems for our customers. Um, that said, we and our customers and the audience ultimately want to see that average bit rate increasing. And we have seen that increased over, over the last five years, certainly since I've been working in the in the business in in uh, in this part of the world. I think it's going to increase further. Obviously, um, things such as the um, broadband network um, getting deployed uh, more pervasively is all good news for for us and also our our customers. But um, there is the ability to deliver very uh, high-quality experiences for consumers in in this market today. The bandwidth caps have, have, have been increasing, and so that's less of a concern. And then the technology to optimize, to minimize the amount of bandwidth for the quality is, is getting better and better all the time. Mark Blair, thank you very much.
very much. Thank you for your time, guys. Yeah, interesting company, Leon, and uh, doing very well. Now, uh, Sinclair and uh, what to do with the iron ore inquiry. Sinclair Davidson, what do you think of this proposal to have a parliamentary inquiry into the iron ore situation? Well, I think it is a wonderful Australian tradition that when businesses run into trouble, they run off to Canberra for some or other assistance or help or bailout or handout of some sort. And that's more or less what this is. It's providing legitimacy or cover for um, people then to ask for a handout. It is an absolutely appallingly bad idea, but it's in a long tradition of Australian businesses not doing well running to Canberra. Well, Twiggy Forrest would say that uh, BHP and Rio have been basically driving the smaller operators out of business by oversupplying the market and doing that quite consciously and deliberately. Well, the the thing to understand is that uh, they are supplying a market at a profit to themselves. They they have no obligation to to small high cost producers to ensure their their competitors' more or less business models. Um, Iron ore has fallen in price over a long, long time. Uh, BHP and Rio are still profitable at those prices and they are supplying the market. And why shouldn't they? Because at the same time, bear in mind when prices go down, this is a great opportunity to grab market share. So it's perfectly rational for them to try and grab market share off their competitors because when prices go up again, their view is going to be that they're going to keep that market share. So it's in their strategic long-term interest to do this and the, the, the real issue here is that uh, small, high-cost producers are in a risky business in almost any industry, and that's what we're now seeing in, in iron ore commodities, which, of course, is inherently a, a risky business itself. So I, I think as the, the executive, uh, um, chief executive officer of the Minerals Council wrote in the Financial Review a couple of weeks ago, this is how markets work, and we're actually seeing this, the, uh, the market actually operating at the moment. So, um, yes, it's very sad for, for, for those businesses, but it, it, it's hard to, to say that they deserve any special treatment. But at the same time, there's lots of people losing jobs in the mining sector as a result of this. Yes. And yes. so should the government sit by and allow this to happen? The, the Australian government, um, and this has been bipartisan policy for the last, what, 30-odd years or so, has more or less taken the view that it wanted to avoid industry policies, that it wanted to avoid policies where saving jobs was the the, the rationale and the prime motivation of this. We've seen governments more or less walk away from the manufacturing industry and we've seen lots of job losses there and now we're seeing this more or less in the mining industry too. Uh, it, 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 is, it is sad when people lose their jobs. I mean, I, I don't think we should ever underestimate the human cost of people losing their job. This is a big thing. But if you have got an open, dynamic economy, those people will find other jobs. And uh, I always come back when people say to me, what about jobs? I always come back to Paul Keating's very famous statement where uh, some journalist said to him, what do you say to those people who lost their jobs? And Paul Keating said, I would say, are you enjoying your new job? Um, so yes, in an open, dynamic economy, there will be other jobs. There might not be as high paying jobs. There might not be jobs immediately. But we, we have to ensure that especially a small trading economy like Australia, we can't afford to start cartelizing. We can't afford to close ourselves off to the outside world. We have to be open, we have to be nimble, and we have to be smart about what we're doing. The 
whole proposal for an inquiry has been criticised as sending out the wrong signal to the rest of the world. Yes, I, I, I think that's probably true. I think we, 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 need, we need to step back and, and say for 100 years from Federation, or not quite from Federation, but 100 years from Federation to the early 1980s, Australia had a... Had a closed economy we didn't open ourselves up to the outside world well maybe it's not but maybe the 1970s perhaps and uh, that was the, the the model which which Paul Kelly called the Australian settlement and in uh, in the last generation we've really opened ourselves up to the outside world opened ourselves up to trade and become much more productive much more nimble and of course much more wealthier than we have before and uh, the current government has made a big show of saying we are open for business and I think that uh, if we were to actually have a parliamentary inquiry where everybody can run to Canberra and actually just complain about how their business models have failed, how their own choices, how their own ways of making money haven't quite worked out when prices have fallen, would kind of suggest that we are falling back into our very bad habits that we've had for a long, long time. So it, it is a bad signal. It's a bad policy. I can't actually see any good outcome coming from all of this. What are we going to say is that somehow Australia should try and control world prices in iron ore? I mean, the, the thing to understand is iron ore itself is not actually rare. It's, it's, it's quite common all around the world. Our ability to, to manipulate iron ore prices are actually quite limited in the grand scheme of things because unlike, say, oil, where oil is burnt up as it's used, you keep on needing to restock the market. All the iron ore that's ever been mined out of the ground is more or less still in existence. Uh, some of it's maybe at the bottom of the sea and some of it's been shot out into space. But the rest of it is still around and can be reused, recycled, reclaimed. Um, so the secondary market in, in iron is actually pretty big in the grand scheme of things. So our ability to, to impact the price, given the flows and stocks of the market, is, is very, very small. Given that, uh, I mean, Australia's always had various commodity booms. I mean, you know, you go back to the gold rush. I mean, it's always been built on we had cities built on gold we had the wool expansion and uh it was all then uh we've had iron ore and it's always been boom and bust it's been said that australia is a great country that has always managed adversity really well but not its prosperity yes what do you think about that um, I, I think that's probably a bit unfair in the grand scheme of things because if, if you have a look at, at, say, the city of Melbourne, you can still see the, the architecture, the buildings, the, the infrastructure, what have you, that was financed by, by gold and then by wool and by iron ore in turn. I mean, I, I think... We have been pretty good at, at, at managing our economy, generally speaking, and we've gotten much better at, at that over time. The, the thing to remember is that people somehow think that when it's a boom time that that money all belongs to the government or that money all belongs to somebody identifiable. That money gets spread throughout the community. It gets spread to shareholders. It gets spread to foreigners who very often pay for, for the mining activity. So the money does get spread around. Um, do we have mega monuments to show for it? No, we don't. But we have a very good, very high standard of living. And that more or less accounts for what we've done with the money. The other thing to understand is, of course, is that um, in in business generally and in commodities in particular, there is a, a business cycle. Things get very good. You attract new entrants into the market and then new entrants come in. You have an oversupply. Prices fall. This is more or less what we are seeing in the iron ore market. Um, BHP and, and Rio Tinto have got large stocks of high quality, low priced iron ore, which they've been selling into the market. Fortescue came in and bought up some very high 
cost, lower quality iron ore uh, deposits, which um, when the iron ore price rocketed through the ceiling became very viable for them. They made a lot of money um, in a very short period of time selling that iron ore into the market and now prices have fallen again and uh, their business model isn't as viable as it once was at higher prices. That's the market at work. Sinker, wouldn't it be preferable to see, instead of emoting about the loss of tax money from the drop in iron ore prices, to see some planning and promotion of you know, new businesses, education, this sort of thing? Well, from the government's perspective, I've actually got very little sympathy for the, for the government complaining about a loss of tax revenue because more or less government have to live within their means. I, I, I'm very happy to see BHP and Rio and Fortescue and all these people making commercial decisions, standing on their own two feet and so on. From the government's perspective, um, there are things government can do and should do. You should always maintain uh, freedom of entry and exit. You should always make sure that there are no cartels. You should always make sure that you have got a highly mobile, educated workforce. And I think Australia does do a lot of those things, not as well as we could and should perhaps, but we do them well. You always got to make sure you've got good bankruptcy laws so that businesses, when they do fail, can be wound up pretty quickly and the assets moved on. So as long as government is providing a good business environment, um, that's particularly good thing. Um, do we provide a great environment for mining? Not so much. Every year, the Fraser Institute, the, the Canadian Fraser Institute put out a survey of mining and Australia does well, but not as well as you would expect we'd be doing. We're certainly in the top 20 places around the world, but that normally means that there are 18, 19, 17, whatever the number is, other places that are better to mine it than, 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 than we are. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. It's not going to work anyway. And as Sinclair says, you know, we'll just make me a laughing stock. Mac is a laughing stock. And besides, it's part of a great Australian tradition. When any company gets in a struggle, what do they do? They go screaming to the government. And uh, that's a very serious problem. You know, when you think about what China's doing in Brazil, they're building a railway. They're, they're doing all sorts of stuff. That's right. That's right. And uh, meanwhile, our companies are looking to the government for... Um for a handout. For a handout. Basically, a, a, a legislative handout. Anyway, Leon, now the news. Well, Gary, the big, big story was that five of the world's biggest banks are paying fines totaling $5.7 billion for charges, including manipulating the foreign exchange market. And four of the banks, JP Morgan, Barclays, Citigroup and Arby and Royal Bank of Scotland, have agreed to plead guilty to US criminal charges. And the fifth, UBS, will plead guilty to rigging benchmarking benchmark interest rates. Barclays was fined the most at uh, $2.4 billion because it didn't join the other banks in November to settle investigations by the UK, US and Swiss regulators. And Barclays is also sacking eight employees involved in the scheme. Now, US Attorney General Loretta Lynch said that almost every day for five years from 2007, currency traders used a private electronic chat room called the cartel to manipulate rates. And their actions harm countless consumers, investors and institutions around the world, she said. And separately, the Federal Reserve has fined a sixth bank, the Bank of America, $205 million over foreign exchange rigging. And all the other banks, all the banks were fined by the Department of Justice, US Federal Reserve. I mean, that is quite extraordinary. And sadly, I think we're all agreed that they'll probably do it again. I noticed that UBS said, I mean, UBS was fined $545 million and they said it's not going to affect their profits at all. No, not a, not a bit. Well, when you think, say um, even Barclays which copped two and a half billion that's what about 30% of a quarterly profit not a lot not a lot at all so the only way you can do it is by taking away their license and they're not going to do that anyway India is positioning itself to overtake China 
Gary, its annual growth rate of more than 8% compared to China's 7%. And I read an interview last weekend with the country's finance minister, Arun Jaitley, and he told the Financial Times that the country will push ahead with plans for economic reform and resolving disputes with investors. And he said India was planning a huge public investment program, pumping billions of dollars into irrigation, roads and other projects to boost the rural economy, the launch of strategic privatisation and establishing a bankruptcy court. And he told the Financial Times he was confident India would grow at a much faster pace than China, but he said that doesn't give him much satisfaction because he says the Chinese economy is still so much bigger. And of course, India has some singular advantages, a very, very good education system, and they all speak English. Well, most of them, and certainly in the middle classes, solid English speakers. The other interesting one is that um, the Greek debt negotiations, Gary, have entered into the end game. Today, Greece has told the creditors that they can't repay the IMF 300 million euros unless they get aid. And and the borrowing rates for the Greek government have surged, with Greek bonds collapsing, pushing 10-year yields up to their highest levels since April, reflecting growing concern that Greece is running out of cash and won't be able to repay debt. Interest rates on two-year bonds have skyrocketed 23.5% and Bloomberg reports that Greek banks are running shorter collateral to keep afloat and desperate to stay in business. They're using the collateral parked at the Greek central bank. In other words, they're tapping more and more emergency liquidity every week. And as Bloomberg points out, they can only do that for another three weeks. Greece is saying, don't touch wages, don't touch pensions. You know, what are you going to do? What Greece is actually asking for is for the rest of the world to bankroll it and Greek can, Greeks can continue to retire at 50. Well, the uh, there are media reports that the European Commission has offered to break the debt lock by giving Athens a combined $3.7 billion in, EU, in EU and ECB funds from the bailout money. And all Greeks has to do in return is bring in legislation for fiscal measures worth €5 billion. Euros. The Greek government has a number of conditions for striking a deal, including no reduction in wages or pensions. Meanwhile, Greece is saying we're expecting a deal within days, but the creditors aren't so sure. Wolfgang Scherbel, the German finance minister, told the Wall Street Journal he can't rule out Greece making a default. And I think he's absolutely right because there's a political element in this, surely, Leon, because certainly in Germany, if the EU goes on bankrolling, in fact, giving Greece more and more money, the electors are going to get pretty cranky with the government. I think so. Interesting news coming out of the UK. It's fallen into deflation, Gary. Annual consumer price inflation fell below zero for the first time since the 1960s when the Beatles were having their heyday, Gary. (laughs) And um, consumer prices fell 0.1% in April compared with the same month last year, according to the Office of National Statistics. And it's the first time the data showed deflation since 1960. Yeah, very interesting. They need a new Beatle-led recovery. That's right. Now, uh, very worrying news coming out of China, Gary. Uh, uh, Property prices for new homes have fallen for the eighth consecutive month and show And that shows how the property sector is hindering any chance of economic recovery. And with China on track for its slowest growth in 25 years, the average price for homes in 70 major cities fell 6.1%. Can't underestimate the importance of China's property market because economists say it accounts for 15% of China's GDP and affects other sectors like banking and construction. Melbourne and Sydney certainly ought to keep an eye on that. I think so. Same thing could happen. According to China's National Bureau of Statistics, real estate investment growth has fallen 8.4%. 5% in the first three months of this year. And that's going to put pressure on China's policymakers to introduce stimulus measures, I think, Gary. Now, to Australia, and consumer confidence rose last week, driven partly by a positive federal respo- response to the federal budget, and partly, I think, because of the um, Reserve Bank cutting interest rates. So confidence surged 3.6% last week to its highest level since November, after 1.7% jumped the previous week. That's according to the ANZ Roy Morgan's Consumer Confidence Index. 
and the Westpac Melbourne Institute showed consumer sentiment rising by 6.4% to 102.4%. And that's above 100 points for the first time since February. Which is uh, promising, but it would just take one sort of bad piece of news and it'll plummet again. Very volatile. Now, to the discussions we've had with uh, Sinclair, and divisions seem to have emerged in Cabinet over an inquiry into possibly predatory behaviour by iron ore miners, something that's been pushed by Fortescue Chief Andrew Forrest. And the Senate last week rejected a bid by Independent Senator Nick Xenophon for an inquiry, but but there seems to be some support for a parliamentary committee to look at the issue. Last weekend, Tony Abbott actually backed having one. But after he was pressured by BHP and Rio, he's backed away from it and told reporters yesterday, we haven't made a decision yet. Matthias Cormann backed away from his support from it, saying, I've never supported it. Trade Minister Andrew Robb and Industry Minister Andrew McFarlane believe an inquiry will send a damaging signal to trading partners. And mining giant Rio is concerned what a signal send an inquiry into iron ore prices would send to the rest of the world. Now, the matter still has to be debated by Cabinet. Joe Hockey still has to make a final decision on whether he supports a review, but he told reporters yesterday he didn't. Fortescue Metals Group Chairman Andrew Forrest is leading the charge for the inquiry, claiming the two big miners, BHP and Rio, are flooding the market with ore to cut the price and drive smaller miners out of business. Now, former BHP Billiton Chairman Don Argus has warned that Australia will become the laughing stock of the world if a government intervenes. Head of BHP Billiton Andrew McKenzie said that a Senate inquiry into iron ore prices would send a terrible signal to trading partners, and he told ABC Radio that an inquiry would place an additional burden on mining companies and be very bad for Australian competitiveness. And he denied the company was trying to squeeze out smaller players. Yeah, well, you know, it's business. BHP and Rio can produce iron ore much cheap, more cheaply than outfits like Atlas. That's a reality. Well, the issue, though, is uh, what's the government going to do? So the government seems to be unenthused about it, but then you've got independent Senator Nick Xenophon is keeping pressure on the government, and he says he'll not only seek a Senate inquiry in June, He's also planned to introduce his own legislation to change competition laws in the mining sector. As far as the world iron ore market is concerned, it's uh, it's our business and it won't do us any good. That's right. Fortescue Metals Group Chairman Andrew Forrest has emerged as one of the backers of the deal that's put Atlas Iron back on the path to production. And Forrest has joined Atlas suppliers, including McAleese, Cube Logistics and MACA, who are chipping in to raise $180 million, which will be used to act some of Atlas's debt. Forrest's move is a bit of a surprise, given his recent private investment in gold miner A1 Consolidated Uranium Mining Vimy Resources and Nickel Play Poseidon. The non-Fortescue investment is hardly out of kilter, though, and additionally, Forrest is engaged in a very public spat, as we know, with BHP and Rio. Yes, indeed it is, and, and of course, there's Poseidon. Remember way back in the late 50s, oh, yeah. 60s, the Poseidon thing? Oh, yeah, that was the 60s. Yeah, 60s, yeah. People lost a, a huge amount of money on that. People lost their shirt. Now, the federal government has pledged $19 billion to pharmacies to dispense taxpayer subsidies medicines for the next five years. Health Minister Susan Lay says the in principle six community pharmacy agreement will double investment in new and existing support programs for patients and allow pharmacists to discount the medicine co-payment by one dollar. So it's in effect it's going to turn pharmacists into retailers. I think you can expect uh, pharmacies to start appearing in supermarkets. I think it's a matter of time. Now sales of new motor cars in Australia declined in April according to data from the ABS. New car sales fell a seasonally just at 1.5 percent to 9,000 94,888 in the month. And what's interesting, Gary, during the week was that shares in BHP Billet and spin-off company South32 debuted on the market and they closed their first day of trading at $2.05 each. And that gives a, that company a market capitalization of $10.9 $10. billion. Pretty good. 
That's right. And the debut price sits towards the lower end of the $2 to $2.50 range that was expected by analysts. But it would still rank it as Australia's third biggest miner by market value, just outside the ASX top 20. So spinning it off made a lot of sense, didn't it? It is Australia's biggest listing since AMP. That's quite significant. And it's done very well in London and Johannesburg, better than in Australia. The last piece of news is that BHP Billiton's going to pay a US $25 million fine to settle a long-running SEC anti-graft and corruption investigation into its sponsorship of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And and alleged payments for a Cambodian exploration project. And the fine, which involves no admission of bribery or corrupt intent, spells the end to a saga which has been hanging over BHP's corporate responsibility record since 2009. And under the terms of settlement, the world's biggest mine and by market capitalisation will report to the SEC on its compliance program for 12 months. Now, the SEC program centred on allegations of insufficient corporate controls at a hospitality program BHP hosted as a major sponsor of the 2008 Olympic Games in China, which is, of course, BHP's biggest customer for iron ore. So far, anyway, <laughs> just keep an eye on Brazil. Well, they stopped short of saying BHP was bribing, but that was because BHP was cooperating and had uh, pledged to take immediate remedial action to stop anything like that happening again. And there's also an investigation into a Cambodian exploration project, which has since into graph payments surrounding that, but that's since been discontinued. I suppose if you think about it, it's uh, <clears throat> largely the clash between Asian and Western business practices. That's right. And that's it for now, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, next week, we're going to have a chat with Ian Ralph from Manifex. So we're going to talk all about manufacturing. And that will be very interesting in the Australian context. That's right. Or high-end manufacturing, anyway. Anyway, uh, so that's it for this week. Uh, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.